BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I want to get into the economy. There's some pretty startling economic indicators out there. I'm guessing if the bottom falls out before Trump leaves office, he's going to blame it on the Chinese virus, which will play a role in this and is already playing a role in this. Apple announced yesterday or the day before that they're expecting next quarter that their revenues will be down because their production is down. I mean, you know, at Foxconn, the factory where they make the Apple devices, only the first day of work, and I haven't seen numbers since then, but the first day of work, only 10% of the workforce showed up. People are not leaving their houses in large chunks, large parts of China. You know, first it was the doctor who discovered the virus who died, and then it was now, I read in the Financial Times, that the doctor who is the head for the state of Hubei, I think it is, the state in which Wuhan is located, the guy who is the administrator died from this. He had been supervising, caring for people. So this has got China pretty freaked out and uh, increasingly the world freaked out. So, you know, it's going to slow things down. It doesn't mean that that throws things into a crash or anything like that. But there are other numbers. This from Axios, U.S. industrial, this is U.S., U.S. industrial production fell three-tenths of a percent in January month over month, and the previous month was revised down by a minus four-tenths of a percent. And this is the fifth reading in a row below zero. The annualized rate of industrial production in the United States, annualized year by year, is now minus eight-tenths of a percent. And, you know, that's something that is a very, very, very good presager. John Hill, who's a capital market strategist with BMO, a company that, you know, analyzes this stuff and advises clients on how and where to invest, he said, the drop in factory output is particularly concerning as over the last 50 years, we've only seen one instance where industrial production slowed this much year to year without a commensurate recession. Now, part of this is Boeing, you know, the Boeing MAX. Uh, the predictions are that uh, just shutting down the Boeing MAX is going to hit the United States GDP by, uh, could it hit it by as much as 1%? Because it's not just Boeing. I mean, there's literally thousands of companies around the United States that make parts for Boeing. But the Fed report showed that industrial output was lower by 7% in the aerospace sector 
and one-tenth of one percent overall in manufacturing. Again, the manufacturing in the United States for the entire year is now in recession. It's negative. Even utilities, production of electricity and gas, natural gas, things that we use to heat our homes and power our lights, uh, that was down 4%, and which is probably accounted for by and large by factories not running at full capacity or not running at all. So you've got that. And meanwhile, the Baltic Dry Index, this is something probably you've never heard of. If you're in the shipping business, you know what the BDI is, the Baltic Dry Index. And what it is, is it's a measurement of the activity by ships at sea that carry things like ore, iron ore, or coal, or oil. I believe that there's a subset of it that is ships carrying manufactured goods, but I'm not certain. But the Baltic Dry Index is one of the most important factors, variables, that economists look at when they're trying to figure out whether the world's economy is expanding or contracting. And this is from Chuck's uh, riff in the uh, Aiden Forecast Daily Newsletter. He says, this past week I was taken aback by the drop in the Baltic Dry Index. The BDI dropped 72% since early December, which was prior to the virus being announced. But given the fact that China's economy has basically been shut down for over a month now, the shipment of goods from China is non-existent, and this is quite evident in the BDI. Oh, and by the way, the BDI is now at levels that it hasn't seen since 1986. Now, you, those of you old enough to remember, what followed 1986? The stock market crash in 1987 that was the largest since 1929. Now, we recovered from that quickly, but still. 1986. He said industrial production here and in Europe have gone negative. Now, I just gave you all the numbers for the United States. Industrial production in Europe has also gone negative. And again, this was before the, the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus. Factory orders have gone negative. The bond guys get this. This is one of the reasons why massive amounts of money in the stock market have shifted out of the stock market. And you know, this is institutional investors, big banks, you know, big, big investment houses, the people who know what's going on. Millions and millions of dollars have shifted out of the stock market and into the bond market. Why? Because bonds are traditionally considered safe havens. So people are getting ready, right? They're, they're building their steel umbrellas for when the rain starts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'll give you a few more details on this. Uh, there's one that's particularly startling. But I have a question around this, too. I'll start with that right after this. Marta in Big Bear Lake, California. Hey, Marta, what's up? Well, great news. It looks like Bernie is going to beat Trump in Texas and turn Texas blue. What um, makes you think that, Marta? His phone numbers are getting closer and closer to Trump's mm. in Texas. So they're increasing. So we have to look at the momentum, look at the trend line. And he's getting closer and closer. And so meanwhile, on Face the Nation... A panel of white talking heads played the tape of Bloomberg on, you know, stop and frisk and said that like Trump, who is politically incorrect, and that's how Trump won, 
it's advantageous for the Democrats to run Bloomberg because he's politically incorrect. Now, I heard a young man talk about how terrifying it was to be walking down a street and cop car pulls over. They're yelling at him, get down on the sidewalk, get down on the sidewalk. We're good, you know, with guns close to him, close to his, his head. And spread your legs, spread your arms, and a gun right at his head. So it's not stop and frisk, it's stop and terrify and assault. And, you know, the damage that's been done to thousands and thousands of these young people only because they had a little bit of marijuana and a minuscule number had gun. So I think Bernie is the most moral, and we have to stop thinking about who's the most advantageous. We have to go, in my opinion, with the one who has the most moral, conscientious, positive policies and background and character and, you know, you're talking about the economy. We have to invest in the future. Free college, Medicare for all, working with organic farmers, small farmers, all of Bernie's programs are solutions. We have to invest in, that's the only thing that's going to prevent a massive recession or even depression. Well, preventing a massive recession or depression is to some extent, out of the hands of the politicians. I mean, Donald Trump has been holding off, has been holding this at bay successfully for some time, using the Fed, basically. But it's going to be a real challenge. Marta, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Nina in McAlpin, Florida. Hey, Nina, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? I am um, great, but I'll get better. How about you? <laughs> you changed my subject while I was on hold. I'm sorry, but the census deal... I did, well, my daughter did that online like two months ago. We got it in the mail and sent it right back through online, and everything was great. So I'm hoping that. Was it census.gov? Are you sure it was the actual census? Well, it came from the Bureau of Census, and when she went online, it was right there to fill out your household thing. So. Good, good. I didn't know that they were doing that at this point online, but that's good. I'm glad you did that, Nina. And, uh, you know, just be careful because the Republican Party is sending out scam things. And then there are scammers who are just trying to get your information, too. But good on you. Nina, thank you for the call. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Jason in Washington Township, Michigan. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind today? I've called the show a couple times before about my union and... I love my union and get paid good. I had an argument with my neighbor. He's a big Trumper. And my daughter and my my wife, they worked for my wife's uncle, and he is a teamster. And he, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar. You, you're from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Down in Detroit, there's the Eastern Market, mm-hmm. which is a big produce I've terminals and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, okay. The reason I used to go and, there and, and buy food when we lived in fruit, Westland. Yeah. Yeah. And my argument was to my Trumper neighbor was, well, my wife paid for school from our, her union wage was making $25 an hour, paid for her nursing school. My daughter's doing the same. And that's just working in the summertime. Mm-hmm. That was just working like 50, 60 hours. And they're paying for this stuff. It's like, well, if wages would keep up with stuff, but you could afford stuff. And right. still, it's still expensive, but 
It's just like in my neighbor. Oh, that's the unions, and uh, and I'm yeah. like, come on, give me a break. Yeah, if the, break. If the 1968 mean, minimum wage was inflation adjusted, it would be around twenty three dollars an hour right now. And my daughter made twenty five dollars an hour this past summer, Tom, yeah. loading yeah. produce and stuff. And there's, and what, which is hard work. You can, and it's hard work exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, but they paid for the my and my son. He paid for his teaching. He's going to be a teacher, and it's like. Yeah. What are these people? I mean, my neighbor. I mean, he's in debt. I'm not. Tr- I'm not trying to get anybody's business, but, and it's like you're worried about my daughter and union job. I mean, they're getting paid decently. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Well, what's wrong with that? Probably from your Trump <laughs> neighbor's point of view, is that you know he's not getting that. He's jealous. He doesn't have a, a union job. Reagan did a really good job of destroying you know two thirds of the union jobs in America. I mean, this is this is and the he's legacy. Working, right he's now. working longer hours. I don't. I forgot what he does exactly, but he's working sixty to seventy hours, and he's just he's just mad. He's not getting paid yeah. like. My, yeah, no, I get it. Like and and, and what he needs to figure out is that it's the Republican Party who's creating this for him. Jason, I got to move along, but thank you for the call, James. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Talking about socialism. I call myself a FDR social democrat and then when i start to get feedback if it's from the right i ask those people well what are you anti-social and that usually <laughs> starts a good conver- that usually starts a good conversation and then my first thing i want to go after talking to people like that is of course our medical establishment and i'll refer to it as the medical mafia that's coming for you and all your stuff but there's so right. many things that are that are social. So when people come after Bernie for being a socialist and the rest of us, that's what I want to ask them. What are you, anti-social? And right down the line, you see all these policies in our country that I served probably back in the late 60s and early 70s. I think you get my drift. Uh, I I do. Yeah. And I, I love your response. And I will try to remember, you know, in the heat of things, sometimes it Stuff just slips by, but I'll try to remember to say, oh, you're, you're antisocial, huh? That's a great one. I love that. Hey, my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. More information is available at all fine bookstores. I cover how the heartbeat of democracy depends on the vote. This book goes into depth on the racist legacy of our vote and the unique struggles of African-Americans, women, and Native Americans. In part two, there's a deep dive into the economic royalist modern war on voting. And part three is the solution section, how to get out there and get active. I'm also on the road to the book tour for the hidden history of voting. Join me on Friday, February 28th at Powell's in Portland and Sunday, March 1st in Chicago. More information is available at TomHartman.com. This book is the third in the series after the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment and the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. So, you know, I was talking about all these uh, signs of looming recession, and the ones that I gave you are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. We've talked, in fact, we talked with Richard Wolf last week about the massive explosion in consumer debt. People are not keeping up the massive explosion in student debt, particularly since 2005 when, you know, Congress passed the bankruptcy laws, so you can't discharge it. And then the banks thought, oh, these are absolutely risk-free loans. Let's jump into this with both feet. 
housing debt is going up too because the housing bubble and the housing bubble is the consequence of low interest rates. So we're seeing this explosion in the value of houses, or at least in the price of houses. But all of this begs the question. Recessions do have political consequences. They have major political consequences. It's virtually a truism. It's, a, it's almost always true that when the economy is bad, the electorate will elect the other party. Jimmy Carter had a recession. It was you know, the tail end of the second Arab oil boycott. Ronald Reagan became president. Well, obviously, there was a bunch of other factors, but you know, there was a recession there. The biggest one in our lifetimes in recent days was 2008. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney presided over the largest crash and freeze-up of our economic system, literally the largest since the Great Depression. And Barack Obama got elected president. So when the economy is bad, typically people say, you know, we'll try the other party. Maybe they can do a better job. Because people do vote their pocketbooks. They do vote their jobs. People want to keep their jobs. They want to be able to keep their home. They're, they're making bets on the future. When you put money on a credit card that you know you can't pay off this month, but you think maybe you can pay off in six months, that's a bet on the future that six months down the road is going to be good. And with the average credit card debt in the United States around $17,000 per person, you know that a lot of people are making bets on the future. And if they're afraid that those bets are going to go south, or if it looks to them like those bets are going to go south, you know, it becomes very problematic it's in terms of saying, well, yes, let's maintain the status quo when the status quo isn't doing good. So this recession is coming. There is now no doubt about it. It's also, to the extent that it is coming, if it happens between now and November, Donald Trump will almost certainly blame it on the virus in China. But it's not, that's not the single and sole cause. That's one small piece of it. But it's coming. And it's coming in large part because the Republicans refuse to allow Barack Obama to really and truly address the core of the problem. You know, his Recovery Act, which yesterday, I believe it was, he tweeted out, you know, on this day 10 years ago, I signed the Recovery Act, which has led to 10 years of economic expansion, which is true. And he kind of blew away Donald Trump because he basically took credit for his own economic expansion. God bless him. And he's, and he's right. And it was a good thing. But the whole point is that if this crash happens or recession happens before the election, it increases the probability that people will vote for a Democrat instead of Donald Trump. If he can hold the economy together here in the United States, even if the worldwide economy starts falling apart, if he can hold it together in the United States, it increases the probability that Donald Trump gets reelected. And then what happens is, I mean, Trump has the ability, since, since Jerome Powell, the Fed chief, just dances to Trump's tunes no matter what he says. You know, and Powell's been wanting to raise interest rates. The interest rates are artificially low, and they have been for a number of years. Well, they have been since 2008, 2009. And it's the main thing that's kind of held the economy together. And if Trump, after the election, let's say Trump loses the election, and he says to Jerome Powell, you know, on November 5th or November 10th, he says to Jerome Powell, go ahead and raise interest rates. I don't care. I'm leaving office. 
And Powell, you know, kicks him up even a little bit, even, you know, a couple hundred basis points, uh, you know, a tenth, two tenths, five tenths of a percent. That will throw the economy into recession. There's no doubt about it, because so many parts of the economy now, the financialization of our economy, is so heavily financialized. So much of our economy now depends on, on you know, big corporations and all this, uh, and on banking rather than making things. It, it will throw the country into recession, which means that President Sanders or President Bloomberg or President Klobuchar or whoever it is, is going to be coming into office with a recession. What, and, and of course, you know what the Republicans are going to say. Aha! The market fell apart because they elected Bernie Sanders. The market fell apart because they elected Joe Biden. The market fell apart. You know, fill in the blank, right? This is what they are going to say. In fact, before the 2016 election, a week before the 2016 election, Donald Trump tweeted, if I'm not elected, the economy will go into a recession under Hillary Clinton. Right? This is how this guy thinks. So my question to you is, how do we plan for this? How do we message through this? How do we inform people? Because it's really hard. I mean, you can't just walk up to the average person and say, you know, the Baltic Dry Index or, you know, uh, industrial production in the United States has been negative now for almost a full year. It's been that way in Europe for a year. That's a leading indicator, about a one to two year leading indicator of a recession coming. The yield curve inverted for the second time two weeks ago. And the yield curve always predicts a recession about a year in advance, sometimes as little as three months in advance, but typically it's about a year. You can't just walk up to people and say that. Now, when Reagan kind of juiced the economy, not kind of, when Reagan supercharged the economy in the early 1980s by, you know, cutting taxes and, and cutting regulation and letting corporations start buy back their stocks, the economy started looking really good. It was a sugar high, just like we have right now. And people would say to me, you know, well, what, <laughs> Reagan seems to be doing a great job. And I would say, yeah, you give me a trillion dollar credit card, I'll show you what it looks like to live large. I think that may be you our best chance. You are listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Pointing out that the so-called Trump, you know, good economy, which, by the way, is not as good as Obama's, was just juiced. It was a sugar high. Beth in Rockford, Illinois. Hey, Beth, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hi, Tom. I'm calling concerning about Bernie Sanders. I'm a Bernie supporter. I voted for him last time, and then, of course, he didn't make it. I voted for Hillary. My concern is is I know people that were Bernie supporters that have gone crazy and gone to Trump. And they are pushing people to vote for Bernie. I have a daughter in Iowa where she was shocked to see that a lot of the people that were voting in the caucuses were Republicans voting for Bernie. Mm. And I'm wondering why they're all pushing for Bernie. And then I asked one, I said, why, are you going to vote for Bernie this time? And the answer laughed and said, oh, no, we're all voting for Trump, but we're all pushing for Bernie. Yeah. And so um, I, and they're talking about when he has had his town halls and that, that his supporters are getting more violent than that. I'm wondering if they're really Bernie supporters. You've got two kinds of people who are Trump voters who are showing up at Bernie rallies and who are becoming Bernie activists on Twitter and Facebook and social media and things like that. You've got the Trump voters who voted for Donald Trump because they actually believed him when he said, I'm the outsider. 
I'm going to blow up the system. I'm going to do away with this corrupt quid pro quo thing where the lobbyists always get what they want. The average person always gets screwed. I'm going to change all that. I'm going to be the guy who, you know, I'm going to raise taxes on rich people. Donald Trump said this. I'm going to raise taxes. He said he was going to raise taxes on rich people. He said he was going to roll out a health care system that was even better than Obamacare. It would cover everybody at a lower price. Sounded suspiciously like single payer health care. And he promised that. He said, we're going to bring back the factories. Actually, we haven't brought back any factories or the ones that we have brought back are more than balanced out by the ones that have continued to leave. As I said, industrial production is actually in a recession right now. So basically, he lied about all those things. But there are a lot of people who are just sick and tired of the same old, same old politics, whether it was under Democratic or Republican administration. Basically, since 1980, we have no longer been operating under Keynesian economics, under FDR, LBJ economics. We've been operating under Herbert Hoover economics. And so people are like, damn, I want to change. And so there's a lot of people who voted for Bernie in the primary and then voted for Trump in the general. I knew a bunch of those people when I lived in D.C. I've told the story a million times and I won't repeat it. That said, there are probably also people who are Trump supporters who are looking at the field of candidates and saying, well, who can Trump most easily beat? And because the drumbeat on CNN and MSNBC for the last few months, particularly as Bernie has been rising in the polls substantially, the drumbeat from the corporate consultant class or the Democratic consultant class, these guys who are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to consult for Democratic campaigns, and then they also get paid when they show up on TV if they're regulars on the networks, their drumbeat is, you know, because Bernie doesn't hire consultants, right? Their drumbeat is, uh, well, you've got to go with one of the so-called centrist candidates. If you don't, you're going to lose. And so uh, a lot of these Trump supporters who want to see Trump reelected are saying, well, if Bernie's the nominee, then he'll easily lose. The fact of the matter is that with the exception of the 1992 election, when George Herbert Walker Bush lost, every election since 1980 run by the Republicans has been a base election. They have simply called out to their base. Ronald Reagan unambiguously in his first speech was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, unambiguously called out to the racists. He said he was going to try and uh, deconstruct Social Security, reform it in quotes. Everybody knew what that meant. He said he was going to try and kill off Medicare and Medicaid. He said he was going to have free trade all around the world and let American factories go elsewhere. And he actually wrote NAFTA, the first version of it. That was written during the Reagan administration. And he said he was going to outlaw abortion, and he said he was going to roll back the 1954 Brown v. Board decision. These were the things that Ronald Reagan ran on. And he was going to increase defense spending radically. And those were the things that his base loved. And so his base turned out, and he became president. George Herbert Walker Bush tried to go down the middle. He was like, oh, well, I think, you know, I'm a more moderate guy, you know. And that was his pitch in the primary, in the 1980 primary, which he lost to Reagan. But he's like, I'm down the middle. And Bill Clinton came out with his new covenant speech, which was his stump speech in 1992. He gave it all over the country. And you can read it. It's reprinted in my book, Threshold. But it's also on the Internet. You can find it easily. And you read the New Covenant speech, and it's pure FDR. It's, you know, we're going to build schools, we're going to build hospitals, we're going to reconstruct our infrastructure, we're going to raise taxes on rich people, we're going we're to expand the poverty programs that Lyndon Johnson created with the Great Society, we're going to expand unemployment and union rights that Franklin Roosevelt brought us. That was Bill Clinton's sales pitch. In other words, Bill Clinton ran a base campaign in 92. 
and it got him elected. Now, he didn't govern that way, and some would say he didn't govern that way because, because Alan Greenspan and Jamie Dimon, the week before he was put into office, told him, you can't do that. We will pull our financial support of you. There are other people who say he, he wasn't able to do that because Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took control of the House. But that wasn't until, I believe, 86. That was in his second term, as I recall, or maybe it was 84, the end of his first term. But he didn't govern that way, sadly, tragically. So then Obama again ran as the guy who was going to blow things up. His slogan was hope and change, and people went for it. George W. Bush tried to run as a, a somewhat more conventional moderate Republican. He didn't run a, 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 he ran a base campaign to some extent, but, you know, kind of down the middle. And he, frankly, if you look at the popular vote, he lost by a half a million votes. According to the exit polls, he lost by two million votes. And according to the exit polls in Florida, he lost there by 90,000 votes. So the problem is the last time Democrats ran a real base election outside of the kind of phony one that Bill Clinton did in 92 was George McGovern in 72. And George McGovern got wiped out, but it had nothing to do with running a base election. I mean, that was his anti-war election. It had to do with the fact that George McGovern was a soft-spoken guy who couldn't talk well, didn't give good speeches. He had Tom Eagleton as his vice president for a while, and then it was revealed that Tom Eagleton had had electroshock therapy, and I think this was around the time One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out. And then he had to change and get another vice president, and it was just a total cluster. And so you get these p people sitting around going, oh, you know, if you get Bernie, it's going to be just like George McGovern. No, it's not. So the bottom line is that the Republicans, by and large, since 1980, have run base campaigns where they don't try to reach out to moderates, and they certainly don't try to convince Democrats. Instead, they try to get their base out. When you consider that Donald Trump was elected with 26% of the eligible electorate, what that tells you is that if you can simply get your base energized, you can easily win elections. And we saw this in many states in 2018 where Democrats flipped, flipped uh, congressional seats and state house and state senate seats around the country from red to blue by running base campaigns. And that's what Bernie is doing. He's running, a, and that's what Elizabeth Warren is doing. They're running base campaigns. And that's why I think that the so-called middle-of-the-road campaigns, I mean, when you look at the middle-of-the-road candidates, Al Gore lost, John Kerry lost, Hillary Clinton lost. These were the middle-of-the-road kind of, you know, we're not going to make big changes. It's just all small incremental stuff. So I think that these Trump guys who are out there trying to promote Bernie are going to get burned as badly as the Democrats in 1980. And I remember the movement who were trying to get Reagan to be the nominee on the Republican side because they thought he'd be easy to beat. And, you know, they thought George Bush would be much harder to beat. And, and uh, you know, look at how that turned out. So, Beth, it's all real, but we'll see how it You're plays listening out. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or large under eye bags? Now, imagine that they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw the results for myself. You'll be delighted too. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. 
you will be too. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. And welcome back. Tom in Alexandria, Minnesota. Hey, Tom, what's up? I'm not concerned about the timidity of the Democrats. It mm. seems to me that two recent events, the budget that they put out and the cowardly behavior of the Senate, where 53 people, Republicans, didn't live up to their oath. I think in a previous election, James Carville coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. I think mm -hmm. the Democrats should it's say, too. it's the congressional Republican, stupid. And, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, if we don't win the Senate and we win the presidency, Mitch McConnell still has all the power. they got to get more hardcore. Yeah. I'm with you, and, and we need to be focusing on Senate races, and that's the news. The good news is that in the last election, in 2018, the, that Senate election, about two-thirds of the people running for re-election were Democrats. In the 2016 election, or in the 2020 election, excuse me, about two-thirds of the people running for re-election in the Senate are Republicans. And there's a bunch of vulnerable ones, Martha McSally in Arizona, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. You've got uh, a number of... Cory Gardner in Colorado. Go ahead. It's not only the uh, Senate. The behavior of people like Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, they yeah. should be fodder for the Democrats. I mean, yeah. I think the, it's the Republican stupid is a pretty good phrase. Yeah, and I would expand that to say it's the corruption, stupid. Uh, you know, Jim Jordan now has a sex scandal swirling around him. I'm guessing that it'll take him down. If he had been a Democrat, it would have taken him down instantly. But the same thing happened to Denny Hastert, who climbed all the way up to Speaker of the House. And he was a wrestling coach, too. And it turned out that, you know, he was up to no good with uh, some of the boys on the team. And now, you know, it looks like Jim Jordan knew what was going on and, and covered it up or at least ignored it. But with Matt Gates and some of these other guys, you know, who are actually very effective, high-energy politicians, I don't think that you can go after them. I, I, I think there's a grudging admiration on the part of Democrats when they see Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and, and these guys just, you know, Doug Collins just go nuts on these issues. I think that a lot of Democrats are not saying that's terrible. They're saying, I wish Democrats were like that. Remember when Alan Grayson was in Congress and he got up on the floor of the House and he said, here's the Republican health care plan. Don't get sick, number one. Number two, if you get sick, die quickly. Uh, you know, and, and, and the Republicans were outraged, outraged. How can they say that? How can they do that? But, you know, that's what it was and that's how it worked. And 
He was a very effective politician. So I'm less sanguine about this, Tom. I'm, I'm more, you know, I don't think that running against specific Republicans like that will be as effective as running against the naked corruption they're participating in. They're voting for legislation that increases pollution, that dirties our water, that fouls our air, that diminishes the future for our children, that deregulates the banks and increases the probability of crashes, that, that makes your employer more able to harm you. Those are the things they need to focus on. So Donald Trump is getting ready. Uh, he's getting ready to, to commute the sentence of Paul Manafort, and he's getting ready to, to maybe even pardon him and uh, probably commute the sentence of Roger Stone. And how does he get ready for that? He commutes the sentence of a Democrat. Real simple. And that way he can say, oh, it's not partisan. I'm not just trying to help Republicans. He just let Rod Blagojevich out of jail. It's amazing. I'm telling you, this is what's coming. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, Norma, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Good. What's up? Okay. You had a lady call in and said she and her friends were talking about going for Bloomberg because they're afraid their taxes would go up. Well, first of all, your income would have to be very high for your taxes to go up. But secondly, Senator Sanders' expanded Medicare for All plan includes long-term care, which would save people millions of dollars. Also, most people in this country do not understand that poor people who are making less than $10 an hour, they're only allowed to work 30 hours a week at a job, which means they have two to three jobs. Each paycheck has Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid taken out of it. They're already paying for something they can't use. And bless his heart, Julio, I'd like to invite him to come to the South where no Republican governor expanded Medicaid, and we have had eight outbreaks of tuberculosis here. One of our best restaurants was closed for two months because of a hepatitis A outbreak. These people, particularly anyone who works as a contract employee, this, these are the people who clean buildings, who clean schools, who work anywhere and everywhere that they can get a job, do not have any benefits. They move in and out of society everywhere, all over the country. And they can be carriers of any and every disease you could probably think of. With the coronavirus, I'm sitting here wondering, how many isolation units do our three small hospitals have here? How many doctors do we have? Most of the nurses in these hospitals are contract employees. The hospitals do not want to pay all of these matching benefits for Social Security and Medicare. They want to have the least amount of expenses possible. So all of these contract nurses move around the country day to day, working different shifts. In 2004, my mother was almost killed because the contract nurse worked at one hospital for 12 hours, then reported to my mother's hospital for 12 hours and gave her the medication for the woman next door who was a diabetic. If I had not caught it, she would have died probably in about five hours because she did not need insulin when she's hypoglycemic and NPO for 24 hours for a procedure. Right. This, this has to stop. 
because if we don't have sufficient health care across this country, we could lose a significant portion of the country, the population. Not only that, why should you wish your neighbor to continue for the rest of their life to hand over half of their income so a CEO can be happy? Right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Norma, thank you. Very, very well said. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Longtime listeners to this program recall the story of Jude Winiski and the two Santa Claus theory. This was you know, one of the uh, big-time Republican strategists back in the 70s said, when Jude Winiski came up with his two Santa Claus theory, we thought we had died and gone to heaven. And what it was, it was published in the Wall Street Journal in 1976, and it became the principal strategy of the Reagan administration. At the time that Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, the federal budget deficit was $800 billion. It was less than $1 trillion. Reagan campaigned on budget deficits being a bad thing. By the time he left office, the federal budget deficit was $2.4 trillion. It had tripled, or $2.3 trillion. It was just a little less than tripled. So how did that happen and why? Well, here's Jude's strategy. Jude pointed out in this Wall Street Journal article that the Democrats were widely perceived, uh, keep in mind, this was in the wreckage of the Nixon resignation, and the Republican Party was freaking out. They were desperate. A, an unknown peanut farmer from Georgia had just beat uh, Jerry Ford, you know, a respected member of the House of Representatives who had become vice president and then become president. And, and you know, nobody questioned Jerry Ford's integrity. He'd been on the Warren Commission and everything else. And yet he was still beaten by this peanut farmer. The Republicans were pulling their hair out. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? So what Jude Wininsky said was, the Democrats have always been viewed as the party of Santa Claus. They are Santa Claus. They bring the presents. They brought us Social Security in the 1930s. They brought us federal projects, the TVA, the Rural Electrification Administration that brought electricity into rural and poor people's homes, um, the Rural Telephony Administration that brought telephone service to people you know, on the t- tail end of the, of the Roosevelt administration. They brought us Medicare. They brought us Medicaid. They brought us all these programs. These were all long-term unemployment insurance, disability insurance, um, workplace safety rules, uh, food safety rules, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration. These were all things created by the Democratic Party and by members of the Democratic Party. And in every single case, the Republican Party at the time said, no, we don't want that. That's socialism. That's terrible. That's bad. That's not what government should be doing. And he points this out in this article in the Wall Street Journal and says the Republicans have been seen historically as the party of Scrooge and the Democrats are seen as the party of Santa Claus. And how do you run an election and win if you're Scrooge? You can't. So the Democrat, so the Republican Party has to do two things. Number one, we have to figure out an arena, an area where we can be Santa Claus. And we need to rebrand ourselves as Santa Claus in that particular arena. And that is tax cuts. We need to become the tax cut Santa Claus because everybody hates paying taxes. Even people who don't pay taxes don't know they don't pay taxes. They hate taxes. So we have to become the tax cut Santa Claus, number one. And number two, we have to figure out a way to force the Democrats to shoot their Santa Claus. 
and that's Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. We have to figure out a way to force them to cut back on these entitlement programs that are so popular. And if they will cut those programs, they will lose their popularity and people will say, oh, those Democrats, they're not Santa Claus. To hell with them. We're going to go with the Republicans because we want our tax cuts. And if you get a big enough tax cut, you don't even need Social Security. You can save money for retirement. And, you know, Jude Wininsky laid this out. And the, the final piece to it was, he said, the way that we do this is when a Republican is in office, you run up the debt as hard and as fast as you can. You intentionally spend mind-boggling amounts of money. Again, being Santa Claus. You spend money on defense. You spend money on domestic programs. You spend as if you were a Democrat, only a drunken Democrat. You just spend like crazy when a Republican is in office. And then the minute a Democrat comes into office, she starts squealing about the debt. Oh, my God, it's going to be the end of the republic. The dollar is going to be worthless. It's going to, we're going to be like, you know, we're going to end up like uh, Venezuela or Zimbabwe. You know, the currency, it's, it's going to be like Germany just before the war. You're going to have to take a wheelbarrow full of money down to the store to buy a loaf of bread if this deficit continues to grow like this. And Pete Peterson and his foundation, he was a Wall Street billionaire and he wanted to privatize Social Security so that he could take a piece of it. He, he started the, and he had, they had this debt clock on Wall Street and, and, you know, all this stuff. And all these commentators, very serious people, would come on TV and talk. When the Democrats, you know, when Jimmy Carter was president, or really it started when Bill Clinton was president and when Barack Obama was president, you couldn't turn on TV. I mean, every single day, somebody was on there bemoaning the national debt. Oh, my God. And the Democrats actually actually took this seriously, sadly, to the point that Jimmy, the, the, the last two presidents to actually produce balanced budgets, and in one case actually a surplus budget, were Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. They actually balanced the budget. Uh, you know, and, and they did it using, you know, shooting some of the Democratic Santa Clauses. Bill Clinton balanced the budget in part by block granting all kinds of programs, from housing programs to food stamp programs to, to the so-called welfare programs. So they did it. It worked, right? So now, you know, now we've got Trump, and he promised when he campaigned, he promised that he was going to eliminate the federal budget deficit in, I believe it was five years, or in a certain relatively short period of time. Well, obviously, he's ex exploded it. I mean, we've got annual deficits now of over a trillion dollars, which add to the $20 trillion debt that we already have. Every year, the, the deficit adds to the debt. So this is where it gets hysterical. The Washington Post got a recording, an audio tape, of a private meeting that Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House Chief of Staff, and the head of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, which decides how much money the government is spending and how and where. Right? He was the one who withhold, withheld the, the aid to Ukraine, because it all runs through the OMB. They got an audio tape of, of him speaking at the Oxford Union to a group of right-wingers, and uh, here's what he said. This is verbatim quote. My party is very interested in deficits when there is a Democrat in the White House. The worst thing in the world is deficits when Barack Obama was the president. Then Donald Trump became president, and we're a lot less interested as a party. Bingo, right? Bingo. Jude Wininsky lives on. I mean, he's been dead since the 80s, but he, or, or maybe the 90s. I'm not sure when he died, but, but he lives on. I, I just don't, you know, why doesn't the media ever even point this out? It's like, this is not a secret. This was published in the Wall Street Journal 40 years ago. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Damon in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Damon, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to get this out on your show. I've only seen it reported so far on TYT, so let me get, get the point. Yale and two other universities, Yale University and two other universities, I think one of them was University of Florida. I'm not sure. I'm sure you could do your research. They did Bernie Sanders Pacific Medicare for All plan, and they came out, it would save $4.5 with a T dollars over 10 years and save 680,000 lives over 10 years. That's correct. That's correct. It was published in The Lancet, the British Medical Journal, that is the gold standard for the world of medical journals. And your numbers are exactly right. And yes, and that was Yale University was the principal. It was the lead accredited group in that study. And it was a good, solid, peer-reviewed scientific study. Yeah, I want to say one more thing. This is so easy to pitch. The only thing that Republicans seem to care about when people die is the opioid epidemic. So all you have to do is pitch it. It would save as many people per year as die from the opioid epidemic. Yeah, actually, uh, even more. I think it's around 50,000 now. It's, it's down a little bit. But excellent point, Damon. Thank you very much for calling and making it. I appreciate it. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the possibility that a recession prior to the election will hurt Trump or may actually help Trump if he can play victim and say, oh, it's all the virus, et cetera, et cetera, you know, versus a recession after the election that Trump could use to blame on a Democrat being elected if he loses the election, which is fairly likely, frankly, if you look at the polls right now. Now, Trump does have this billion-dollar death star that he has built, and there's a brilliant article about it over on The Atlantic, and if you haven't read it, you need to go track it down. But, you know, they're doing what Cambridge Analytica did, and only they're doing it with greater sophistication and a lot more resources, and they've got their billionaires lined up behind it. And it's already happening. I mean, he's got thousands. He's spending a million dollars a day on Facebook to to push out ads that contain just naked lies. And that's just fine with Mark Zuckerberg. You know, Facebook doesn't care if politicians lie. Although when Mike Bloomberg started doing memes on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, all of a sudden it was like, oh, Mike Bloomberg, a Democrat is doing this? Oh, my God. And he wasn't lying, by the way. He was just, he was just uh, basically paying a fee to influencers, which is something corporations do literally every day. It's part of the business model over there at Instagram. But Zuckerberg doesn't make money on it. The influencers make the money on it. So 
Anyhow, Bloomberg starts doing that on Instagram, and suddenly Zuckerberg and, and Facebook are like, whoa, man, we, we need to reconsider the rules here. Uh, this is starting to look pretty grody to me. So, so anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls and see where, we, where we're going with all this. Jim in Sacramento watching Free Speech TV. Hey, Jim, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to, uh, it's good to come in at the end of the show because I'm really talking about something you had before, which is how the Democrats seem to fall into a trap of preparing the economy or the plate for the Republicans to take over. In other words, the Republicans destroy the economy and then the Democrats come in and repair it and then give it back to the Republicans. The ratio that reveals what's going on is the ratio between national debt versus the GDP. So Mm -hmm. you can correct the situation by paying down the debt, of course, with an austerity program, which is the threat, okay? But you can also change that ratio by inflating the economy. In other words, doing the things that are not now being done to expand the economy. And that plays into the You're talking about like a a massive infrastructure program. Yes. In other words, right now here in this little town of Sacramento, we supposedly have 5,000 homeless people. And it might cost $50 million to build single occupancy residential housing specifically for the homeless. And I'm not saying I know that's a fact. Seattle and many cities are dealing with it and have much more advanced programs than I'm trying to tell you. But that's an area where you could throw many, many billion dollars directly into the economy of each one of those cities. And it reflects the employment. It stimulates growth. And each dollar that's spent circulates around, and there is a multiplier. All those Keynesian things apply. However, if you just manipulate things by bringing up or down the interest rate or hiding the debt, which is what Trump is doing right now, the program that came in like around 2012 was quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve bought the debt and didn't even sell it. So that effectively lowered interest rates. Took them off the market. Now, what Trump is doing is paying that kind of money into the overnight funds, okay? Mm-hmm. There's 600 right, the to $700 yeah. billion dollars financed, which normally would have been quantitative easing. In other words, they put it on the books of the Federal Reserve, but instead they're buying two-week and 30-day notes. Can you imagine that and the, debt effect is the, of same. the country is being financed on short-term money now? Yeah. All yeah. you have I to know, do it's... is... Unload it. It's absolutely and unprecedented. This economy freezes it's never up. Been done before. Yeah, what yeah. he's doing is it's, totally unique. I called yeah. you about that on, uh, I think it was November eighteenth, and at the time I was pointing you out that China is no longer buying U.S. debt, and that was what mm-hmm. stimulated the overnight borrowing. I knew it was China because of the extent of the money hitting the economy. Now that has mm-hmm. developed into short-term money. Right. Yeah, it's uh, what these guys have done with this financialization of our economy is they've created a, a, a train wreck and, and the trains are moving toward each other at 100 miles an hour each, but they're still about a mile apart. And uh, I'm not optimistic about what's going to happen when they get a lot closer. 
And I don't think they can slow this thing down. Jim, thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price. Uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Harbin. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure, but it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a Constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the Constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in Chapter 2. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first 10 amendments to the federalist document. 
the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. Abdul in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Abdul. So did you, you lived in a country that had, had a national health care system and high taxes? Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you don't have to worry about copies. And the, the other gentleman even called and was trying to support that as well. So and your so experience was, my, was my, the same as hers. Was that in the United Kingdom? No, I mean, I worked for Oxfam, but I wasn't based in the United Kingdom. But it was a similar situation. Right. You know, but then I could limit here and the amount of stress around health care, right. you know, how it's just too much. So I don't know why this is not yet outside the domain of the public. I agree. This is why we're seeing yeah. these diseases of despair. We're seeing an explosion in deaths that are the consequence of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and obesity. And, you know, these are considered diseases of despair. Abdul, thank you for the call. Boy, what a day. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. But in the meantime, don't forget, it, it, democracy doesn't just happen. It doesn't fall out of the sky. It requires all of us getting active and involved and showing up and participating. And that includes you. And by the way, it's great therapy, right? If you're a little freaked out or feeling a little depressed or bummed out or seasonal affective disorder or whatever it may be, you know, show up for drinking liberally, show up for your local Democratic Party, show up for, for you know, indivisible, whatever, whatever you can find, participate, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And tell your friends about progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
Carl Harbin cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.